on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the long battle for one scientist to be heard on the sea urchin problem. I created a brochure that I took to Agfest in 2004. I had a bucket with an urchin in it and a little tank, and no one knew what this thing was. I just printed them off. I used my student allowance on the photocopier and just was handing out this little brochure saying what this species is, how it behaves, why it's a threat. And a lifelong Tasmanian cattle producer exits the beef industry. And I think we're going to see quite a lot of volatility in the cattle market going forward and until it finds its level again. It, it's dropped sort of 20 to 30% in the last six weeks or so. And whether it's got more to go or um, whether it's going to start to find a level remains to be seen. Yeah, big decision to go from cattle to sheep. That story coming up later in the program. And we'll take you to day one of the Senate hearing into the sea urchin problem, which is continuing today in Hobart. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, where we also talk in just a moment to a local dairy farmer who's got an early Christmas present from one of the big supermarkets. And also news that JBS will reopen an abattoir in regional Victoria and will process goats, plus a detailed check on the weather. And also your thoughts on any issue via the text line. Feel free to say good day. 0438 922936 is that number. 0438 922936. First up today, dairy and supermarket giant Coles has offered bonuses and new three-year contracts to three Tasmanian dairy farmers who supply the Coles brand milk in this state. The new contracts have also been offered to dairy farmers who supply Coles in New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. One of the suppliers, Dave Jones from the Derwent Valley, says the new contracts came as a surprise as Coles tries to ensure enough milk for its stores across the state over the next three years. Well, Coles have just extended our contract for for the three years and uh, have given us a new contract, which I can't really talk too much about, Tony. It's it's a healthy contract and it'll mean for our family and our business that we can move forward with positivity for the next three years. So how long have you been with them now? Uh, this is my second year with them now. So yeah, so only two years, but it's, um, it's been quite the ride. Uh, as we all know, uh, dairy prices have historically fluctuated quite a lot, but um, over the last couple of seasons they've been fluctuating in the right direction, which has been nice. Um, and Coles has always shown that they're prepared to, to meet and beat the market, which, is, which has been a, a really nice change as a dairy farmer. Now, initially you did sign a contract for three years and they were uh, giving you a particular price. And then uh, what happened in the second year when the prices last year, when the prices went through the roof? Well, we were all quite a little bit nervy oh, all of us there's there's three suppliers in tasmania uh as we saw the the figures coming out from other processes of eight and nine dollars because we were we were locked in it quite a lot below that but true to the form that we've we've seen with with coles and the milk department the contract was uh ripped up and a new one was offered to us with a which with a much better price. So yeah, they've been great to deal with, Tony. And the latest price, which you can't let us know what it is, is even better, I believe. Quite a bit better than than what we were on. And and as I said before, it'll it'll make going forward a lot easier. We can forward plan. We can um, fix up some some items on the farm that probably haven't had attention over the last 10 years and um, and then do what most people would like to do, and that is pay off some debt. I suppose it's not uh, normal really in the dairy industry to ensure you've got a, a great price for a three-year period. 
Absolutely not, Tony. I've always signed contracts, uh, long-term contracts for, for for all of my business, whether it be power, grain, whatever. If I can lock something in at a price that I'm comfortable with and know I can make money out of, then, then I have. Unfortunately, with the dairy industry, there's been contracts there, but unfortunately, there's never been a price linked to them. There's been bonuses for signing the contracts, which have been a small amount of money, but the actual price has never been confirmed. So this is a real, real change. Uh, I think I describe it to my wife as generational change. You know, for us, Tony, it is it it is hugely important. It'll put us in a position in three years' time that if the wheels happen to absolutely fall off, our business will be extremely strong and be able to weather whatever comes to us. I suppose it uh, was a bit of a gamble when you first ventured into this <laughs> partnership with, with the supermarket. What are your thoughts now? Uh, well, I'll be quite honest, Tony. There was um, quite a bit of heated discussion around the, the dining room table with uh, my wife and my children. They were very um, much no because of the, the history um, with dollar milk. But my bank manager and my accountant convinced them that it was probably worth the gamble and it's, it's definitely been worth the gamble. What's going to be the talk around the dinner table tonight? Uh, yeah, no, there's all smiles at the moment, mate. <laughs> all smiles. It's, it's nice when you're right occasionally. And obviously from the supermarket's point of view, it must be working this contractual basis, a three-year guaranteed price, good price. It must be working for them as well. Yeah, it, it is, Tony, because as we all know, the milk supply within Australia has been declining for the for the last four years now and even though we've got a great milk price this year due to environmental factors, um, floods in New South Wales and, and being too wet and too cold in Tasmania, the, the milk supply is going to drop again this year. So Coles want a certain amount of milk so that they can supply their supermarkets with milk and cheese and this locks them in. They know what they're doing with their business for the next three years. Um, so it's a it's a win win for both, and that's how processes need to start looking at the relationship between farmers and themselves. Is they need the milk, we we need to make money to survive, and this is a good way to go about it. How do you think consumers are looking at the price they have to pay now for the milk? Are they happy with with that? Do you think is there evidence of that? Is there more consumption? Uh, I, I don't think there's more consumption, Tony. As as we know that. The, there's a lot of people doing it really hard out there at the moment with interest rate rises and power rises and all these sorts of things. So people are watching what they spend, which probably plays into the brand, the um, home branded milk um, and cheese because it's a it's a bit cheaper than the branded stuff. So I would I would say, and I don't know, but I would say that it'll be playing in, into the supermarket's hands that people will be going for the cheaper options rather than the branded product. And uh, Dave Jones, your property is uh, getting water from Lake Meadowbank, which, as we know, is now uh, a lot less water than was in the lake last week. <laughs> How are you coping? Uh, is your irrigation system uh, now okay uh, as we head into late summer autumn? Um, yep. So the, the, the new infrastructure, which um, after a, a lot of lobbying, uh, we got some help with um, funding through the government and through Hydro. Um, is is in place and although there were a lot of studies done and a lot of measurements done um, we were all still a bit nervous about uh, whether that actually suck water when uh, it was two meters down and it's looking quite good they haven't actually been switched on fully yet but that'll happen next week 
but yeah, no, we're uh, we're we're comfortable, and and I'm and I'm pretty sure most people on the lake have got their infrastructure sorted. We were given ample time in the end and adequate funding through hydro to to get the work done. So um, yeah, fingers crossed, everyone's right. We can we can keep on irrigating and keep on making milk and wool and sheep and lambs. And, and how will you go when you won't be able to draw water from the the, the lake when it's down the six metre level? Um, Hydro, to their credit, had planned on dropping it in March, the six metres, and and still are planning on dropping it in March, the six metres. But we did come to an agreement that if it was a dry March, which in Hamilton it normally is, uh, they will wait until April to do the drop. And by that stage, we should be, you would hope we'd be right, Tony. The days are a lot shorter, the evaporation's a lot less, so we could water everything up before the, the six-metre drop and keep our fingers crossed, get a little bit of rain, and, and, and we should be right. Tasmanian dairy farmer Dave Jones, who's one of three suppliers to the Coles brand milk in the state, talking about the new three-year upgraded contracts offered from the supermarket and also talking about the uh, drawdown of water at Meadowbank Lake. Well, the first day of a public hearing involving a Senate inquiry into climate-related invasive pest species is underway in Hobart today. A big focus is the spread of sea urchins in southeastern Australian waters. The hearing follows a two-day workshop in Launceston, which included scientists from around Australia, as well as the US, Japan and New Zealand, to try and find a comprehensive strategy to tackle the invasive long-spined sea urchin. A reporter, Madeleine Rojan, attended the workshop and spoke to a number of people about the problem. Over the past two days, stakeholders and scientists from around the globe have come together in Launceston to fight the problem of the Centrostephanus, or long-spined sea urchin, that's been decimating ocean floors and precious kelp beds over the past 50 years. It's really similar to what's been seen in Tasmania, other than the fact that in New Zealand it is a native species it's it's always been there but in low numbers so but with the warming temperatures there's obviously been an increase in recruitment yeah I'm I'm Yukinori uh, from uh, North Japan Northern Japan yes and what's brought you here to the urchin conference all the way from Japan we have a new sea urchin cultivation system and we we, de- we are developing uh, with Hokkaido University in Japan. Sea urchin is so versatile, like you can use it in anything. Given that we're at the um, conference here to try to tackle the issue of invasive urchins, um, which is quite a, it's a global issue, what role can processes like yourself have in this? Our processes play a huge role in uh, combating the huge populations of the Centro Longspine Sea Urchin. We're the ones that are buying them all and creating the demand you know, for the divers to go get them. So uh, our role's huge. Uh, Ali Kendelmo, I'm Conservation Science Manager at Reef Environmental Education Foundation. And obviously we have the problem with the longspine sea urchin here. What could we learn from your practices over there? Um, I do think uh, sort of some collaborative approach that allows for the commercial market to expand but then brings in recreational divers to potentially remove urchins in areas that 
commercial divers aren't going or don't want to go or the, the urchins aren't really viable there. Um, and then also marine protected areas where commercial divers won't be allowed to fish. Um, that could be a nice kind of collaborative approach. Plus the community involvement really brings up, brings the attention of the problem to the media often. You can use derby events to attract the media and then bring other funding sources through from local sponsors, you know, and so that helps kind of forge the management effort as well. In one way it's a very strange feeling because um, what I suppose from an Indigenous perspective I'm trying to do is put across a perspective of um, cultural knowledge um, in regards to what um, Centro has and how Centro has actually impacted um, the east coast of Australia. Um, from our perspective on the east coast, the urchant has has created all sorts of problems when it comes to um, our cultural sites um, where we traditionally dive, and um, we've got um, a lot of concerns about um, that sort of invasion and and how it actually transpired. Um, so we're at a point now where we're going. We've got to do something about this for our kids' sake. Um, because um, we've noticed fish stocks have actually decreased, so it, it is a it is a real concern to us, and um, we need to actually have a seat at the table. Last year, a Senate inquiry was initiated into the spread of climate-related marine invasive species like the long-spined urchin. With its first hearing taking place today, stakeholders are hoping answers to the problem will ensue. Now this has been a great conference. I really appreciate being invited. I've learned a lot, but like, there are a lot of parallels between the two. So I'm yeah happy to give my wisdom on how to run an urchin derby in the future. <laughs> I'd <laughs> love to see it. Tasmania for that. <laughs> Your new job. Yes, for sure. That's scientist Ali Candelmo ending that report from Madeleine Rojan on the two-day workshop in Launceston to try and combat the sea urchin problem in the southeast Australian waters. Well, as we heard, the first day of the Senate hearing into the sea urchin problem this morning in Hobart was told at least $50 million needs to be forthcoming to manage the issue. IMAS scientists Dr John Keane and Dr Scott Ling compared the issue of the sea urchin on the Great Southern Reef to the crown of thorn problem on the Great Barrier Reef, where the money is being spent to control that pest. I think where it hits the crown of thorn in the, in the Great Barrier Reef is the, you know, the impact on tourism. Um, and there's a lot of tourism, tourists diving under the water. We have less tourism in the Great Southern Reef down in the southeastern Australia, but we've got higher value fisheries. Um, so the economic impacts, you know, are probably similar magnitude, but instead of being tourism, it's, you know, it's fisheries um, and, and ecosystems. And, and I would add to that that the crown of thorns will go through these boom and bust outbreak cycles. With Centris stephanus, the long spine urchin, it, it'll boom, it'll collapse the reef and then we're locked into that for the long term. It, it won't collapse, doesn't eat itself out of house and home. So we're basically losing reef habitat. That's a real problem for fisheries management as well because it means they're fishing harder and harder in a diminishing habitat. Take, if they don't drop their total allowable catch, they're just concentrating their fishing and they're really fueling this fire of, of collapse of, of one stock after another. So um, I, w- I would argue that the, the long-term impacts of, ecological impacts of the long-spine sea urchin is, is a bigger impact on our southern reefs than the crown of thorns is on, on the Great Barrier Reef. Can you and give us some very specific recommendations? Oh, I'll just say my, my last comment on that is, and it got brought up at the workshop yesterday, is 
we have a where with crown of thorns, the only option is to cull them yeah. in with the long spine sea urchin. We've got all these other options, including you know the commercial industry, the fishing. So there's an economic return, and it was mentioned yesterday. It's this is quite unique in a lot of pest management um, scenarios is that where there's an actual economic opportunity. Mm. Um, so I think that needs to be capitalised on. Absolutely. So you, you've got some very specific asks, which the committee will look at. Um, you're asking for a $50 million commitment, uh, which is less than a third of what the government's recently committed to Crown of Thorns for a long-term, setting up a long-term program of federal leadership coordinating the yep. states and yep. taking a holistic... Yeah, so I guess unlike Crown of Thorns going to need that continual funding, yep. um, you know, because there is no economic... Hopefully with the, the sea urchin, if we can set up an economic opportunity, it'll largely become self-funding. So through time, we probably won't need as much money um, as, as you will. Crown of Thorns is just going to be a continued money sink, where hopefully with the sea urchin, we can set up industry to control at least large parts of the problem. How many years have you been ringing the bell on this? Just to finish. Um, so I thought about this in the last couple of days. I created a, a brochure that I took to Agfest in 2004. I had a bucket with an urchin in it and a little tank, and no one knew what this thing was. I just printed them off. I used my student allowance on the photocopier and just was handing out this little brochure saying what this species is, how it behaves, why it's a threat. So that was in 2004. So I was sort of chuffed that there were actually so many people in the room that are actually recognising this problem, but it's like most disaster movies that yes, starts with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. But but it was like a situation where the you know most disaster movies start with a, a scientist being ignored. <laughs> no, no longer are we being ignored. <laughs> and and um, yeah, yeah. So maybe I felt a little bit chuffed and. Um, uh, yeah, last couple of days, and, and yeah, as I said, IMAS really welcome this Senate in inquiry. We really thank uh, everyone for the opportunity, and we feel empowered that we can do something about this problem. If there are solutions after many decades of work, we find that we really, um, we know there's no silver bullet, but reef by reef, um, we, we can tackle this problem. Yeah, that's Dr Scott Ling. And also you heard from Dr John Keane from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies speaking at the Senate inquiry in Hobart this morning on the invasive sea urchin and calling for $50 million to help manage the problem. And we also heard from Tasmanian Senator Peter Wish-Wilson. If you go to our ABC Rural page or ABC Hobart page, you can see a fabulous story by Zoe Keane on the sea urchins wreaking havoc on Tasmanian's kelp forests. Some, uh, some great pics and a great story about what the sea urchin is doing uh, on the east coast of Tasmania. Coming up in just a moment, JBS reopens one of its abattoirs in Victoria. Catch the Landline Summer Series, hosted by award-winning journalist Pip Courtney. Landline is Australia's only national agricultural television show delivering stories from Australia's rural and regional heartland. Ahead of Landline's return for 2023, find the Landline Summer Series on ABC iView. From off-the-grid farming to crayfish, get a taste of Australia with Landline Summer, 12.30pm Sunday on ABC TV and iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Oh four three eight nine double two nine three six. That text line number for you to remember. 
A little bit later in the program, Richard Bailey will be along to talk about the uh, lamb and the cattle markets. And also we'll have a Doohan Valley farmer who's been a long-time cattle producer. He's now going all the way and uh, just doing sheep, no cattle anymore. That story coming up for you. Well, as of Monday, the Cobram Processing Facility will be running again for the first time since 2017. Owner JBS announced the site will reopen, initially creating 150 jobs with plans to increase to 350 jobs at full capacity. Good news for Cobram. The mutton, lamb and goat processor will operate five days a week and have the ability to process up to 4,000 head of livestock per day. JBS says it's reopened to keep up with the growing demand for lamb, mutton and goat domestically and also internationally. Paul Conway is the State Secretary of the Meat Workers Union in Victoria. He says the union welcomes the news. I think it's good news. I'm, I, I'm sure um, people in the area will be pleased at the announcement as well. Hopefully that it creates a, uh, a lot of full-time um, positions for people in the Cobram area to be able to get employment. Um, so, yeah, I see it as a good thing. Um, I understand you've spoken to JBS and they're starting up with 150 jobs and it will increase to 350 at full capacity. Uh, how significant is this for the meat processing industry? Uh, it's it's fairly significant in that we've seen a lot of rationalisation of the industry. So for JBS to make the move to um, reopen Cobram, obviously they have um, a long-term plan and, and uh, viability for the company. So um, it's a good thing all around as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm pleased with the announcement. Um, happy that JBS are reopening and um, look forward to continue to work with the company and, um, and see more people employed in the, in the area. So it'll be a, a processing facility for lamb, goat and mutton. Um, how is that demand are you finding? What's the industry looking like at the moment? Well, primarily the um, the demand will be for export, um, so the plant will be an export plant. I believe it will uh, provide um, meat into the local market as well, as they mostly do, but um, it, it definitely is an export plant. So um, the demand for Australian meat overseas is high, um, so good thing. And I guess as someone who's worked in the industry for a long time, what's a bit of the history of the Cobram facility there? Uh, the plant was originally owned by the Vodacek family and it was operated um, by them for a long time and it was a, a really good operating plant. It had uh, good wages and conditions. Uh, when the plant closed, it was purchased by JBS and uh, they operated it for a number of years and then it subsequently closed again. So this is a rebirth for JBS up there. I think the um, the main additive that they've got on this is that it will probably be producing more goat than it um ever has previously. Um, so it's a mixture of lamb, mutton and goat um, processing. So clearly they've done their um, their homework and due diligence uh, before they've reopened it. So um, I would be extremely confident that their um, connections overseas in the export market has um, given them the opportunity to open it with a long-term plan. And finding workers and, and labour shortages is a huge issue for a lot of industries in agriculture. Um, and JBS have also said in their announcement that they will be filling some of the initial roles through the, the PALM scheme, so the Pacific Australian Labour Mobility Scheme. What do you make of that and do you see that as a, a long-term thing in Cobram? I think the PALM scheme will assist the uh, plant getting it up and operating. Um, but I understand that the company will... Um, 
endeavour to employ as many locals as they possibly can, Australian permanent residents, um, and they will probably continue to have a uh, residual amount of um, visa workers, whether they're Palm or from um, uh, other destinations, to uh, to you know fill the the need during their busy times, um, which is normal part of the industry. But uh, I certainly know that the company will um, endeavour to employ as many locals as they possibly can, and I've also um, they're going to operate, I believe, from the expired agreement that that was in place, um, but they've up the wages there, so um, I know the wage rates that will be being offered, so I don't think they're going to have anything in the way of trouble trying to find um, people that will be prepared to work there. So it, um, it, it all looks good and promising from my, my perspective. Right, so the wage offerings are quite competitive in terms. Yes, they are. What does this mean for the local community in Cobram? I mean, where's the next closest processing facility that people can work in? The next closest um, processing would be Chuka, but that's not working a full week. I believe it's only working a couple of days a week. So, and this would provide uh, substantially um, more secure work. And uh, I, I think it's a good thing for the community, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, the flow on effect from uh, people having work there is that they'll spend more in the community as well. So it's a, it's a win all around us. I can't see any negatives in it at all. I guess, do you think this is a, a, a vote of confidence in the meat processing industry locally in Australia? I think it's a vote of confidence JBS are here at, um, to stay and that they're, uh, they've got a long-term commitment to operating in Australia. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I see that as a positive. We've got a good working relationship with them. Um, they have their site down here in Brooklyn. We've, uh, we've worked closely with JBS over the time there and I'd say that we have a good working relationship with the company. So um, I hope to see that continue in the future with the uh, the opening of the Cobram plant. That's Paul Conway, Victorian State Secretary of the Meat Workers Union, speaking to Andy Brown about the reopening on Monday of the Cobram Meatworks, which has been mothballed since 2017 and by JBS. Coming up on the country, our Chinese pork production back to normal. We'll uh, check the livestock markets with Richard Bailey. And a look at the weather. First up, the news headlines with Laura Beavis. Thanks, Tony. In ABC News, state and territory leaders have been given a high-level briefing on the rise of right-wing extremism by the nation's domestic spy chief. During today's National Cabinet meeting, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk proposed the introduction of a national firearms register following the shooting deaths of two young police officers in her state late last year. A 54-year-old man has been charged with attempted murder in relation to an incident in northwest Tasmania which left a woman wounded. Police were called to a property at Penguin at around 6 o'clock on Tuesday night in response to reports a woman had been injured during an altercation with the man who police say was in possession of an axe. And India's Adani Group has lost over 50% of its share price since a damning report accused it of accounting fraud and stock manipulation claims the company denies. Gautam Adani is no longer Asia's richest person and there are now questions about how much damage the stock implosion could do to India's financial system. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Brooke. Hello, Tony. Uh, What's the weather doing today? Well, this morning it started out very wintry. There were clear skies, light winds and a fair amount of fog around Tasmania. But since then, the cloud has started to build up over the state and we've seen showers through the Bass Strait Islands and along the north coast, along with isolated thunderstorms through Bass Strait. 
As we head into the afternoon, we're expecting isolated showers over all of Tasmania with possible thunderstorms about the north and east until early evening. And then the showers will increase in the southwest during the evening. It is also very cold, unstable air over Tasmania, so we have below average maximum temperatures, and that's following a cold front that crossed the state yesterday. And yesterday it was windy along the north coast, preceding the cold front, and Devonport observed mean winds of 55 kilometres per hour, and also a maximum wind gust of 87 kilometres per hour. In terms of rainfall, the whole state did see some rain yesterday, although most of it was about the north, with the highest total 39 millimetres at Pine Tree Rivulet, followed by 30 millimetres at Fisher River and 29 millimetres at Cape Sorrel. Since 9am this morning, the only significant rainfall has been about the far north, with 3 millimetres at Swan Island and 2 millimetres at King Island and Smithton. The weather does get very interesting tomorrow. We're expecting strong and gusty southwesterly winds to develop on Saturday with wind gusts of 70 to 90 kilometres per hour possible. The strongest winds are most likely about the northwest, the central plateau and the Bass Strait Islands. But at this stage, the winds are expected to remain below severe weather warning thresholds. The strong winds are driven by a low-pressure centre that's moving over or near southern Tasmania, and there is a fair amount of uncertainty with the position of that low and the exact timing and strength of the winds over the state. In addition to the windy conditions, we'll see showers extending throughout during the morning, more frequent in the west and then easing and contracting to the west and far south during the afternoon and evening. And the 24-hour rainfall totals into the west are likely to be around 20 to 40 millimetres, with significantly less rainfall for the rest of the state. That is the most significant weather for the week. The weather does become more settled from Sunday onwards, and on Sunday it will be fine apart from showers about the west and far south. And then on Monday, those showers do continue about the west and far south and fine elsewhere, apart from some morning fog patches. And then the settled conditions continue on Tuesday with a return to ridge-dominated weather. And a return to average summer temperatures? That's exactly right. The temperatures will return to close to average or slightly above average. And we're not expecting another hot day until potentially later in the week on Friday or Saturday. Now, the warnings, we do have a few. We do. For today, there is a strong wind warning for all coastal waters except the Lower East Coast and Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. And for tomorrow, a gale warning for southern, western and northern coastal waters from Tasman Island to St Helens Point, excluding Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. And a strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, including all southeast inshore waters and central plateau lakes. And if we look a little bit more closely at the coastal waters, Today we've got southwest to northwesterly winds at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots through the middle of Bass Strait, and also about the south in the evening. The winds are lighter and more variable about the central west and the central east for much of the afternoon, though. The swells in the west and south are west to southwesterly of 4 to 6 metres, and the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 6.1 metres. In the north, westerly 2 to 3 metres offshore, and in the east, southerly below 1 metre, although southwesterly 2 to 3 metres offshore in the south, and also a northeasterly of 1 to 2 metres. And the wave rider buoy at Mariah Island is currently reading 1.2 metres. 
Heading into tomorrow, we'll start the day with north to northwesterly winds at 15 to 25 knots about the east during the morning, reaching 25 to 35 knots in the southeast. And then west to southwesterly winds of 20 to 30 knots about the west will extend throughout during the day. And the winds will also reach up to 35 knots about the west during the morning and up to 40 knots through Bass Strait during the afternoon and evening. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 4 to 5 metres, decaying to 2.5 to 3.5 metres about the south during the afternoon and evening. In the, north, in the north, westerly 1 to 3 metres offshore, and in the east, southerly to 1 metre, although southwesterly 2 to 3 metres offshore in the south, and also an east to northeasterly of 0.5 to 1.5 metres. But one thing with the marine forecast to keep in mind is that there is a low moving over the southern coastal waters, so just take care with the variable nature of the winds around that low centre. Yeah, it might be a weekend to maybe avoid the waters, stay on land. Quite possibly. Thank you, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. No worries, Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest info on the weather for you. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Rather meaty second half of the program for you. Uh, We'll talk pork in just a moment and also a cattle farmer who's turning totally to sheep production. And Richard Bailey will be along very shortly with the latest on the, the livestock markets, what's happening with the prices. Well, after African swine fever wiped out more than half of the Chinese pig herd in 2019-2020, Chinese pork production appears to have climbed back to normal levels. Chinese imports of pork from around the globe have dropped, and that eventually could mean cheaper processed pork in Australian supermarkets. Matt Dalgleish is a director of Agricultural Analysis Group, Episode 3. He says while pork will still be the most popular protein consumed in China, an appetite is growing for alternatives like chicken, seafood and beef. For the 2023 season, they're forecast to get back to nearly, kind of, if you look at it proportionally in terms of what they produce to what they import, um, for, for a period when they had the, you know, the depths of that ASF issue uh, with their pork herd, they, they increased to about 15% imports to production, whereas now, um, 2023, it's kind of back down around 3% of imports to production. And that's partially because their, you know, their production has started to recover out of that uh, African swine fever um, issue that they had back in you know, 2019, 2020. From an import perspective, um, they look like they're back to pretty close to normal. But also the other thing we look at is the price of pork in China, and that's back to you know levels that were consistent with pre-ASF as well. So, so both price and, and import volumes both tell us that they're pretty much back to normal. If we look at Chinese consumption of pork, I was reading an article in Time from earlier this month saying that domestic supermarket sales have dropped, so prices have dropped off. But are you hearing anything along those lines that consumption may be down a bit? Yeah, for pork products. So historically, but prior to ASF, uh, pork was the, the most consumed item in China in terms of meat item per capita. Um, but uh, And significantly above, you know, chicken would have probably been chicken and fish, you know, the next the next ones below that. And then, you know, you've got beef and, and lamb, you know, a distant third and fourth uh, or sheep meat more broadly. Um, but, yeah, through what happened through that ASF period, because of that reduction in the pork herd in China, and we're talking numbers went down from about 400 million head of pigs down to into the 200 million. So we had a massive drop in their, in their pig herd through mm. culling and, and death from ASF. Um, and that meant that 
for that 2020 season, it was estimated that the the gap in production uh, for Chinese pork was like around 24 million tons of product that they just didn't have access to. Um, so what that meant was in that in that year 2020, um, they had to try and import any other meat protein they could find from anywhere else in the world, which included Australia, of course. And that's when um, China went to the to being the top destination for Australian beef for a period there because they was had such a voracious appetite. For, for meat products. But so what happened through that time, there was not as much pork available. And so the Chinese consumer had to look at other options. And so they started to, you know, eat more beef, eat more lamb. Um, and, and and so that kind of has changed a little bit, I guess, the consumer's palate. Um, you know, it's not that they've, they've now switched totally across. Pork's still the number one meat that they eat per capita. But I think um, they're much more open and more willing to try alternative meat products if the price is right or if they're looking for something different or, the, you know, they've, they've got used to that flavour. So I think it has changed, um, you know, some of the the, the perception in the, in the average Chinese consumer in terms of what kind of meat um, they're happy to, to purchase. That is such an interesting legacy, isn't it, that may continue through where you've been exposed to these different proteins, be it chicken, fish or other, you know, red meat proteins that, there may be a continued demand for them where there wasn't before. That's right. And I think MLA have noted as well, uh, particularly in relation to beef um, towards the end of uh, last year, I think there was an article that they'd spoken about where historically the Chinese consumer, when they when they consume beef, they tended to consume that out at a restaurant. But through what happened, then you had ASF where they started to eat a bit more beef because the pork wasn't available. But then you had COVID come after that. And so they started cooking more at home. And then because they were familiar with beef from, from the ASF episode, then they decided to, to, to try and cook beef at home a bit more. And so that we, we've noticed in some of those um, destinations where we send the beef to that there's been a changing dynamic where they're buying more at the retail level and bringing it home rather than buying it through food service sectors out at a restaurant. Yeah. And just going back to this increase in Chinese production of pork, um, and that decrease that we've seen in terms of imports to production, it's gone from 15% back down to normal, about 3%, you were saying. What does that mean for the Australian pig industry? Will we see any sort of price um, impact from that Chinese production increasing? We can have. We've got to remember that the Australian pig industry, we, don't, we, we do have some exports, but we don't have a lot of exports. Uh, we tend to import more product, but that, that tends to be not fresh pork. It's, it's processed type product, like you, you've salted and cured, you know, your salamis and hams and all those kind of things. Um, but the way that the change in dynamic there with what's happening in China, um, I guess it'll be the reverse of what happened through ASF. So when they were going through ASF, they were, they were looking to buy pork and other meat products from all around the world. And so they started to compete quite aggressively with the Australian, uh, you know, importer of products. And so, you know, some product was getting diverted to China instead of coming to Australia, as in the, the stuff we would normally import here. So that meant that, you know, the local pork producer um, had a bit of a free kick because they weren't getting as um, much competition from imported pork product coming into Australia because it was all being diverted to China. Um, now, with the Chinese kind of going back to a more normal scenario with their trade flow, that could mean that there's more 
you know available pork on the on the market globally um so that could that could mean some of this kind of you know somewhat cheaper imported um, processed pork product can start to find its way back to the australian shelves uh and so that could put a bit of price pressure on the on the domestic producer particularly those producers that are you know, it's not so much in the fresh pork market because because fresh pork in australia is you know you can be pretty comfortable that that's only an australian product but um you know the imported kind of processed product is, is where we might see some price competition come. Yeah, that's Matt Dalglish, Director of Episode 3 in Agricultural Analysis Group, talking to Joe Prendergast about the uh, Chinese pork production appearing to have climbed back to normal levels. Keeping you updated every day. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Richard Bailey along shortly with uh, details of the livestock markets. But a lifelong stalwart of the cattle industry in Tasmania says he's just about finished dispersing his cattle and instead will put all his efforts into sheep. Derwent Valley farmer George Shea says his property and location is just not sustainable anymore for cattle and the conversion to sheep is almost complete. I spoke to George Shea about what's happening on the farm at the moment. Well, at the moment we're uh, shearing lambs, which is um, uh, really good. This is the earliest I think we've been able to get them, Sean, uh, the last few years with issues with shearers and availability it's um been a battle to get them done early but we're going really well at the moment we've got uh young Hayley mcginnis here who did her highest tally ever yesterday of 154 lambs which is quite an achievement for a young girl or uh, very impressive so yeah no they're getting thrown pretty well and and george your farm now is all about sheep but you're well known as a cattleman what's happened well, the last few years, Tony, um, look, the, the Derwent Valley's renowned for being, you know, tough in the autumns, but whether it's a La Nina thing or whether it's a, a transition to a different style of weather pattern, but we've been finding that the rain stops at Christmas time and we just haven't been getting any rain through the autumn until late May. And our place is sort of half irrigation and half dry land. And what tends to happen is that everything ends up in the irrigation through the autumn and uh, you don't get a chance to, to build any feed up going into the winter. And especially with fattening cattle, they've got to be on the irrigation all the time. We put our ewes out into the dryland paddocks and supplementary feed them and lock lambing paddocks up that way. But uh, it's just got tougher and tougher to... Um, to try and manage the cattle in that in that operation, and uh, we made a conscious decision. I, w- I was getting very nervous about the cattle market last year, as it was. You know, we <laughs> we we had the we had the dearest beef in the world selling to a world that uh, was going into recession. So something had to give, and it and it certainly has. But that wasn't the main reason. We we've just found that it's just too hard to manage our cattle going into the winter without getting any rain in the autumn and uh, so we've decided to up our ewe numbers and um, continue to build our supply chain with our fat lambs and our lamb brand and uh, and just back out of the cattle for a while. For a while? Are you saying you may have cattle down the track? Well you never say never Um, you know uh, just at the moment too the the margins in trading cattle haven't been that great and, and I think we're going to see quite a lot of volatility in the cattle market going forward and, until it finds its level again. You know, it, it, it's dropped sort of 20 to 30% in the last um, six weeks or so and 
whether it's got more to go or um, whether it's going to start to find a level remains to be seen. But, you know, we, we're a, an export-based nation. 75% of our cattle leave Australia and uh, we have to take what the world pays us. And at the moment, I don't know whether anybody really knows what that is. You have a lengthy history in the cattle industry. Just give us a potted story of, uh, of your involvement and where you've been in the world. When I left school, we, we had no family properties left. So I went and worked for um, North Australian Pastoral Company for five years and started as a jackaroo and, and ran the camp at Kurawalka for a couple of years and overseer at Marion Downs for a couple of years, which at that time was the largest cattle station in Queensland. Came back to Tassie, leased the place on the northwest coast in behind Burnie and started working for Roberts as a casual livestock gopher <laughs> then we um we bought a place on king island and um my wife and i moved over there and uh um i became the livestock manager at the abattoir there as well as running the property the end of eight years there we sadly sold up there and moved to the riverina where we went into a substantial place with a couple of business partners and ran quite a lot of cattle there for the feedlot at prime city and uh did a lot of cropping and did a lot of stuff that didn't make us a lot of money <laughs> and uh, got out of there and moved back to Queensland and um, I went to work for AMH which is JBS now and worked out of Dinmore the, the biggest plant in the country and also out of Beef City the feedlot there probably bought cattle in every major sale yards from Townsville to Bridgewater <laughs> over the years and then uh, had a few years with Elders International before um Coming back to Tasmania and buying Lindell, which um, uh, we'd always planned to do. And we've been back here now 13 years. And initially when we bought this place, we focused predominantly on cattle as we built the place up. So we were feeding cattle for woolies and for coals at different times. And um, it allowed us to create a cash flow while we developed the place. And um, as time went on, it became obvious that it's probably more suited to fat lambs this country and and as we developed the irrigation in the pastures we sort of worked down that track and created a supply chain and uh, we now supply a couple of butcher shops in town on a weekly basis which in turn goes to quite a few of the high-end restaurants through Hobart and the agrarian kitchen in New Norfolk and we also operate as a ram depot for lamb pro so all our sheep are lamb pro genetics and um the Tasmanian rams come down here and spend a month or so here before they're sold. The rams actually turned up last weekend and look absolutely magnificent. So that's always really interesting. But, but yeah, look, my focus and my background's always been in the cattle industry, but I love agriculture from top to bottom, whether it's sheep, cattle or cropping or whatever. It, I'm interested in all of it. So yeah. it's a bit of fun. And George Shea, how many cattle have you got at the moment? Uh, Twelve. Twelve? <laughs> And they, go, and they go next week, and uh, yeah, that'll be it for a while. So um, we um, uh, very luckily, uh, Tom Tom Bull sent me down, filled up the truck with ewes for me from uh, Lampro that came with the Rams. So they'll go into our commercial flock, their ex stud ewes. So we, we're very lucky to um, to have some very good genetics in our sheep, and that of course lends itself to the high end eating quality. So. Um, yeah, we'll continue to focus on our supply chain and see how it goes. But, um, yeah, it'll be a bit unusual to not drive around the place and see a mob of cattle. And what are the other farmers saying about George Shea not having any cattle? 
uh, few of the livestock carriers reckon that uh, it won't be very long before there'll be some back. <laughs> they they think it's ridiculous. Um, Tom Arch is very uh, sceptical from JBS that I'll be able to go for more than six months without buying a few cattle back in. But, uh, look, you know, it won't be hard to perhaps have 20 or 30 running around. But at the moment, I think the days of having 150 to 200 have just become too tough unless we start to see some change in the weather pattern again. Derwent Valley farmer George Shea, a long-time cattle farmer who's now putting all his efforts into sheep on his Derwent Valley property. So if you're driving around that area and you see a cow down the track on his property, let us know. Have a go at him. Well, talking cattle and sheep, let's head out to the livestock markets with Richard Bailey to find out exactly what's been happening with prices this week. How are you, Richard? Good afternoon, Tony. Going very well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Now... The cattle market first up, uh, what did we learn this week? Generally speaking, in interstate markets, it it plateaued and in places just strengthened a little bit after probably four or five weeks of downward prices. Locally, we've seen our over-the-hooks prices come back in the last uh, 10 days, um, and in some cases significantly. I'm not sure how far that will come back. But in interstate markets, um, a lot of your dealers and better yearlings were sort of anywhere from 10 cents better. Most yearlings made anywhere from 350 to 450 cents a kilo. Grown steers are a little bit better, five to 10 better in places, 340 to 400 cents. And most cows were just a little bit better, but still sort of averaging a bit under 300 cents a kilo for your better cows. Most cows making 250 to 300 cents a kilo, 310 cents a kilo. So um, be interesting to see where this cattle job goes in the next few months. Uh, I'm hearing that they're struggling to shift the product at the other end, which is always a worry uh, when that starts to happen. How long that will maintain we don't know. It's been a bit the same with, you know, certainly mutton, hasn't it? So uh, we'll wait and see on that one. Yeah, uh, I think there's yeah. a few few uh, uh, farmers out there worried about uh, what's going on with the prices. They're not too too certain of what's going going on. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think there's a little bit of concern there. I think, you know, in retrospect, there were times last year when it was a bit lopsided. It just wasn't. There just wasn't enough money in it for the the buyer, and so there was going to be a correction at some stage. But this is just, um, yeah, just a little bit worrying at the moment. But look, we've seen it all before. Let's see where we're going. As I've said for many months now, we've got a very good season right through Eastern Australia, and that's got to, although the cattle numbers are going up quickly, um, it's got to make a big difference to the whole situation when you've got a good season. Yeah. What do the numbers mean there, there Richard, when you've got the herd back to 2014 figures? So there's there's a lot more cattle about. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I, my guess is it will put some pressure on the processing sector because in that period of time we've probably lost a few abattoirs. But the figure that's, that's even more interesting is when they reckon that in another two or three years after that we'll get back to – 2004 figures uh, so uh, you know that's even even more cattle I think the jobs changed since then I think our export markets are a lot stronger than they were back then uh, it's a matter of whether or not the processing sector is geared up to be able to to kill the extra numbers of cattle and that'll be a wait and see thing Tony but and and as I just said a minute ago while the season's good it, it, it can be protected if we suddenly get a very dry autumn through you know big parts of New South Wales for instance or Queensland mm. uh, then we might have a bit of fun on our hands yeah a lot, lot of cattle would come onto the market yeah yep for sure 
what's uh, happening locally with uh, store cattle sale coming up? Uh, yeah, there's one in the middle of middle of the month. We've got Oatlands sheep sale next next Thursday, and then we've got Piranha store cattle sale the following Thursday. Okay. So got a little bit coming up. Now, the lamb and sheep market, what's happening there? Yeah, different story altogether. Um, lamb market continues to, to, to grow and strengthen. Um, ex- extraordinary, really. Uh, we saw uh, right through the week heavy lamb prices improve, and, and as much yesterday at Wagga, um, they said anywhere from sort of five to fifteen dollars was quite common as a as an extra on top of what we had last week. And remembering that the last four or five weeks have been pretty strong, very very heavy lambs that are making over three hundred dollars a head. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of those heavy lambs in that twenty six to thirty kilo range that are making two sixteen to two fifty two dollars a head, averaging over eight hundred cents a kilo. Uh, which is which is very good money uh, this time of the year. We seem to be still going along pretty well. We're still on uh, – yesterday at Wagga there were 39,000 lambs, but er, earlier in the week, you know, at Hamilton there, were, there weren't 20,000 lambs, which is quite unusual for this time of the year. Um, you expect to be sort of in the thirty to 40,000 lambs at Hamilton by, at this stage. So obviously there are going to be a lot of lambs to come onto the market, but it's uh, going pretty well at the moment. There's some pretty good confidence in the store buyer uh, brigade, particularly, you know, like at Bogger yesterday, they they were quite happy in that sort of 110 to 150 dollars a head. So there's some confidence there, which is good. But the other news uh, on the sheep front is the mutton market that, that improved. Well, it started to improve a little bit last week, but this week improved significantly, particularly later in the week. Uh, Twenty to thirty dollars better at Wagga yesterday, and twenty to fifty dollars better at Hamilton yesterday. Uh, it meant that a lot more of these sheep are making between 300 and 400 cents uh, and quite a few nudging sort of that 400 cents a kilo, which um, we haven't seen for, uh, I'd say, three months. So too early to go the early crow, but it's certainly encouraging signs on the mutton job. Yeah, yeah. Why, why do you think that's happening, Richard? I don't know, Tony. Um, I'm assuming that uh, the markets have freed up and the reason that the mutton market came back was because uh, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, backlog in storage um, in freezers and chillers around the world. I assume that uh, that's eased up a bit. Uh, we haven't seen the figures yet uh, for the last month, but I, I'm guessing that probably that with the China economy opening up a bit that they'll be taking more of our mutton. So... I'll report when I know a little bit more on that one. Yeah, I suppose the uh, processors are speculating that about China as well and getting ready for the uh, for the market demand. Yeah, I think so. I think most processors at the moment are pretty near full when it comes to sheep and lamb uh, capacity. Uh, there are some that are still struggling with labour numbers, but most of the ones I've spoken to are getting pretty close to full capacity. Okay, you have a great weekend, Richard. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with the Country Hour next Wednesday to check the latest Power Runner sale. We'll have a podcast up for you very shortly of today's program. Uh, it's on the Tasmanian Country Hour homepage if you want to listen to any of our programs. Also, don't forget ABC Rural Online and the ABC Rural Facebook page as well. Plenty of the stories there to uh, have a look at over the weekend. You have a happy and safe weekend. We'll catch you after midday Monday.